Malcolm Honline is in Israel, which always makes these uh, conversations extra special, frankly. Um, one of our goals is always, and it's been this uh, goal for 40 years, is to bridge the gap between uh, Israel and the diaspora. And these conversations give us that added opportunity. Malcolm Honline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. With us Fridays at this time for the weekly update at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you, Nachum. Good to be with you as I oversee the old city of Jerusalem from one of your favorite perches. <laughs> I know where you are. You're at the Inbal Hotel, I would suspect, and getting ready to exactly. uh, have a wonderful and incredible Shabbos there in Jerusalem. Yeah, Malcolm, you, you and I always discuss whether this is the forum for stuff going on here. We usually talk about more international issues. I get it. But you can imagine how many people are anxious in this part of the world right now because of the uh, group that has called for a day of hate against members of the Jewish communities across the United States. I know some people listening right now may think I'm you know, making stuff up and how outrageous this is and who on earth would attach the phrase day of hate to any type of uh, demonstration. Uh, but in fact, this is what uh, certain people are calling for. And obviously there is uh, a measure. I don't want to get people too scared. And I certainly don't want people canceling Minyanim or avoiding Shul. Just the opposite. As you know, I'd be, I'd be encouraging and continue to encourage only the opposite. Uh, but you can imagine there's a bit of tension uh, in regard to this announcement and uh, that's been made in videos that are going viral. Uh, what could you tell us about what you know uh, about how the New York City Police Department and other police departments around the country and Jewish leaders are preparing for this Shabbos? Well, first of all, it's something that is being taken seriously, but it is not uh, a specific threat. We don't know of any institutions that are being targeted. There are certain cities like Chicago where they feel more concerned because of the uh, presence of Nation of Islam and, and other groups, but not, uh, not uh, Chicago nor any other place. Is there any information for a specific threat? So as you said, people should not be dissuaded from going to Shul, the Shabbos, but everybody should be on higher alert. I think any security measures that are taken just to prevent, um, God forbid, anything from happening, because you can always get a copycat. You can get somebody who's not even affiliated with an organized group, but because you know they've read about this and because this has gotten publicity. But I can tell you that the police departments across the country are taking it seriously, are uh, um, taking precautionary measures. I think you will see a lot of uh, police cars in different locations uh, this uh, this weekend, uh, but it's just a reminder that we have to be vigilant at all times. Uh, the there have been manifestations. I'm sure people saw online the group in Orlando the, and the game Defense League's actions, and you know these other uh, extremists. They're not large groups. They're vocal. They they want to try and intimidate and scare the community. That's not going to happen. And to be um, to be as alert as possible to be reassuring to, to the communities that uh, everything possible is being done to monitor and to check this. They want to create panic. They want to uh, intimidate. And we can't let them uh, uh, have that impact on the community. So 
I urge people just every shul to take the actions that we've uh, urged them all along. Those that have not taken advantage of the training opportunity should do so uh, on an ongoing basis through SCAN, Secure Community Network, through the JCRC and the uh, organizations in New York City that provide this kind of assistance uh, on an ongoing basis. Malcolm, a couple of uh, observations of yours that I need with this whole thing. Often in history, and I would say more than not, and frankly, I don't want to say always, no such thing as always, but but traditionally, anti-Semitism is at least couched, at least hidden behind some type of political agenda, uh, some type of, uh, uh, of rhetoric of why being against Jews is better for the country or better for society. There's always, there's always some type of motive that usually takes the headline. What do you say about a group that's unabashedly calling this a day of hate and is proud that they're out there spreading hate and hateful messages in this manner? So, I mean, they will latch on to anything that they want. They even tied it to the Palestinian issue. If you've seen some of the associations between them and Nation of Islam, for instance, a group they would otherwise hate on every ground, yep. inviting people to speak uh, between them and, you know, them each side inviting the other, uh, making common cause, which reminds us of the, of the remaining danger for those who, who are dismissive of it. Of the you know the followers of Farrakhan and um, uh, and of course of the neo-Nazi and extremist groups left and right uh, that we have to be uh, vigilant about. But a day of hate is just a simple excuse for for trying to create uh, that kind of reaction, overreaction. Uh, but it, it's important to put the police on, on alert, and we have to frankly uh, do much more on the war against Jew hatred, we really have to draw the line in the sand and demand that actions be taken, that when they're allowed to stand outside and harass people and going to a synagogue, or as we saw in Orlando or in other places, free speech is something we you know, believe is protected, but there are limits for free speech as well. And when it crosses that line, inciting people to act and to, to engage in the kind of hatred and which translates from from words to deeds. Words of violence lead to deeds of violence. And you have copycats. They often describe them as lone wolves. They're not lone wolves. The lone wolf is somebody who's living in a, you know, an animal in the desert and decides on its own to carry out an attack. These people are influenced. They are, whether it's an online source, whether it's a minister, whether it's a, an imam, whether it's somebody, a book they read, anything that could, uh, to provide justification for unbalanced people or haters or people who are lo- looking for, for uh, scapegoats for their own issues and, and many other motivations that are behind it. It's, it's too long to go into now, Yeah, but it's the lesson is very clear. I'll make three quick points because I, I know we, we should exit this and go to other topics. I get that, but let me make three quick points, get your reaction, and, and then we'll move on. Uh, the first is that... Um, I mean, a reminder, like you just said, you know, <laughs> this uh, this um, this group with uh, you know Farrakhan followers. It's a reminder of you know Hitler with the Mufti. You know, there's no no way in the world, aside from the common enemy, that they would have ever had 
any type of association together. But uh, Jews bring everyone together um, when it comes to uh, uh, to the hatred that everyone seems, not everyone, but that the groups seem to have for them. Secondly, I think it's important to reassure our children and grandchildren that we have seen stuff like this before. You know, Skokie obviously is one thing I remember from my youth. I mean, you know, the, the, we, we should not, and I understand, and I understand how important it is to remind people of the future. Bill, I'm the one who always says this. Future of the Jewish people is not here. It's in the state of Israel, and obviously every opportunity we get to remind everybody. But, but on the other end, you know, you want to make sure that the panic doesn't set in. You have certainly overseen many of these types of episodes, uh, you know, over the decades, over the years in Jewish leadership. I think it's important to point that out. And, of course, the last point, is the one I just sort of made, and that is that you know every home tonight you can imagine in the United States, especially among those who feel a connection to Israel, are going to start talking about uh, you know how much time do we have left here in this country, and, and and speak about it in very drastic terms. And I would recommend that parents and grandparents again toe the line and to present a balance uh, to all the children and grandchildren out there, and and talk about a future that might not include the United States, but also to you know calm things down, so to speak. What do you think? Well, I think you've raised several very important points that uh, we should discuss. One is we don't want to create panic and we don't want to scare our kids and, and make them feel that Judaism is, is uh, a liability in being a Jew. It means that they have to be trained. We do have more capacity today to address this. We have institutions like SCAN, which ties into the FBI, to the police, and the good relationships between local communities and in Jewish communities and their police departments. I know even this week there were meetings in Brooklyn and elsewhere with uh, police captains, and it's an ongoing process, something that didn't necessarily exist in the past and has to be augmented. Every community should know every police officer that counts, every commander, and, and meet with them, not just when there's a crisis, but to develop means of communication with them so that uh, we protect the communities, but we do have more capacity than we had before. And, and I think a greater awareness that people take threats more seriously than they had over the years. We talked about it and a lot of people say, you know, oh, it was depressing that you raised these issues. And as you know, I always said it's it's depressing. Ignorance is depressing. Yeah. Knowledge is empowering. And having the opportunity to hear and to learn about it. If we would not be living up to our responsibility if we didn't talk about it, if we know these things and and know that and see the the um, nascent uh, movements, this is not something that just popped up today. How many years have we talked about it? And people, you know, synagogues didn't and community groups didn't even respond to the offers we had to do, you know, emergency training. And we saw in Texas and in uh, Pittsburgh how that training saved lives directly because the people had gone through the exercise and knew what to do in that moment uh, when the attack was, you can't in the moment think of it. So we have to have a balanced approach to, to how people address and deal with it. And if you don't see police around, let them know, make your voice heard, work through your community groups. You know, they can't have a cop car on every block. They can't have a, a policeman walking every street, but we have to make sure that there is the proper kind of coverage and a visible presence, which is a deterrent in and of itself for somebody planning to do something. And deterrence in this case means that they go someplace else to do it, but not where where they meet resistance. Right. So very important. And they should talk to the rabbanim about what they can have and not have in the shul. Every rabbi you know, has to make that decision and uh, process that. 
And finally, I'll just say, I know this is an editorial, but I'll just say that um, when the kids say, yeah, but there's so many members of government who are Jewish, it doesn't matter. And uh, if you look at who's, um, uh, who's behind, who, who some of the people are behind the defund the police movement, uh, you'd be shocked that, uh, unfortunately, there are so many members of our very own community who are members of government and have taken on that cause. Ukraine one year later. Good idea for the foreign minister of Israel to visit the Ukraine. I say it like that because I, I think Israel has sort of tried to maintain, and we discussed this a couple of weeks ago, sort of tried to maintain that they're not taking sides in this battle. Uh, good idea for the visit or not? Uh, Israel did take sides, as has most of the world. For Israel, we've talked about some of the consequences because of Russia's role in um, in, in Syria in particular, and Russia's capacities in Syria to, to make it difficult for Israeli planes, etc., to, to maneuver freely. Uh, but Israel couldn't stay on the sideline when the whole world was lining up. They did provide humanitarian aid and uh, were amongst the first, for which they got no credit, uh, and have consistently been providing additional assistance and defensive equipment. They're not providing offensive um, stuff like some of the Europeans who are now coming on board and sending two tanks, three tanks, um, some more uh, to to assist the, um, the troops. Nobody knows what the long-term uh, outcome of this will be, how long Ukraine can sustain it. The president announced another $500 million in aid, but there's going to be growing resistance to it in America, I think. And people are going to question uh, the wisdom of, of keeping to pour, keep pouring more and more money and um, uh, weapons into it. On the other hand, if uh, th- there is a widespread belief that uh, Russia's, Russia's ability to uh, take over ultimately or to occupy uh, parts of, or larger parts of, of Ukraine would be detrimental to the security of Europe and to the long-term interests and that you know, the numbers of losses estimated now are 300,000 on both sides, 150,000 on each side. The number of troops that Russia has lost will also start to create, I think, a backlash at home. Uh, he has not uh, actually deployed the, the hundreds of thousands of troops that he called up. And and you, there are, you know, really widespread battles and terrible destruction that comes in its wake. So th- for Israel, uh, the idea that it stands on the side of, of freedom and sustaining a government uh, is a, an important message for them. Uh, you know, when I was in the Gulf last week, one of the messages that we heard repeatedly was that people lost lose confidence that the West, and including the United States, will be there if, God forbid, something happened with Iran. For Israel, that's a constant consideration. You know, they they're here, as people told us. You know, they 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 have no option. They can't pull up and leave, like you know, ships from the Sixth Fleet. Even though America has had an increasing presence and visible presence in Operation Juniper Oak, which got almost no attention. And Nachum, when you want to see the hypocrisy of the media, here you had six thousand American troops, the largest joint exercise in history between the United States and Israel. 112 planes, 12 naval units, a U.S. aircraft carrier, the B-52 bombers flying over from the United States to the Middle East and going up the Red Sea. And yet 
nobody wrote about it. Nobody covered this amazing demonstration of the common interests and common goals of the United States and, and Israel. And of course, the message uh, to Iran. So uh, it, with Iran's increasing influence and role on the Russian side against uh, Ukraine, as the Israeli ambassador UN spoke about it this week, that has broader implications for Israel as well. And the the uh, as as Iran still remains the focal point of of Israeli security concerns and defense concerns uh, beyond you know the some of the terrorism and and things that have have occurred. Um, is Israel could not stand on the sidelines, and they I believe came under a lot of U.S. pressure, European pressure, a lot of criticism, unwarranted because for a country its size, with the special considerations it has, I think that it's it has to walk a very fine line, but stand by the principles. Right. Well, I stand corrected then on the taking sides issue, but what prompted my question was that I was always under the impression that with the aid you described, the defensive aid, we'll call it for a moment, that Israel gives to the Ukraine, and with the humanitarian aid, etc., I always thought there was a, a different attitude from Israeli officials when it came to the presidential level. In other words, sort of this game where they're doing what you just described, but at the same time trying not to get Putin angry. And I thought a visit from the foreign minister on that level you know, would be testing those waters. Well, you've had so many visits by European leaders and others uh, there have been phone calls with Zelensky and Israeli officials, uh, you know, over the last couple of months. So it's not the initial contact. Uh, and I think the physical presence was something that uh, they felt they uh, needed to do. Right. The foreign minister is a very reasonable guy. He's uh, I met with him uh, during this week. And uh, uh, I think that um, the decision was not taken lightly. It's not something they rushed into in the first weeks of the war you know, just to raise the flags, but to show the level of concern and to show their allies that Israel is there and, and, and is involved and committed. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSiegel.com on the NahumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline, Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents. Major American Jewish organizations. Malcolm with us from Israel. He's literally in Jerusalem as we speak. So I don't know if your colleagues in the Gulf would agree, the ones you spoke to last week, but it does seem that uh, whatever hope we had for Saudi Arabia becoming part of the Abraham Accords, you know, uh, uh, trying to participate as much as possible in whatever we consider to be a democratic process or, you know, toward that type of, of, uh, of, of, um, atmosphere in the middle east it, it seems like that's that's just not going to happen they have expanded their crackdown on dissenters they have uh, uh handed out strict sentences to those who speak out against the government is saudi arabia going the other way after we thought they were warming up toward uh, um, uh toward more uh western type attitudes i don't think that they're going um in a different direction than where where they have been. I think the one lesson we know is that if you want something to happen with Saudi Arabia, don't talk about it in the press. You know, you create create the facts on the ground and you'll be okay. But they are very allergic to public discussion, which rouses opposition, even in the country. There are still people who would oppose uh, greater diplomatic relations. 
it's, I think that there have been ongoing ties and connections uh, between Israel and um, uh, and Saudi or through intermediaries, and more may go on on the ground than than is obvious. As you saw this week, uh, the uh, yesterday that Oman gave Israel overflight rights, which is a big help for trade with uh, the Far East and could make Israel a further hub for uh, business people going um, west to east. The um, but the Saudi track is always the one that been in peril, and especially while the king, who is more hesitant than the crown prince, has been about contacts with Israel. Uh, and because of, you know, when events here uh, often act as uh, make it more difficult, they say, because of the domestic population and seeing the some of the uh, recent involvements in, in defending Israel by actions in the, uh, in the territories, very essential actions and so distorted in the media that it's almost unbelievable. I saw headlines on two or three stations saying, you know, nine killed in Janine and then Israeli, uh, two Israelis hurt, not saying they were kids that were run over and that a, a nine-year-old and an eight-year-old, uh, a six-year-old are are killed. And the, the, the fact that the terrorists the people killed were all terrorists, and they were engaged in, as was the group yesterday in Shrem, engaged immediately in threatening actions against Israel, in terrorist activities. It was a lion's den group, and that no country in the world would be asked to, to ignore that or not take the necessary action to prevent an attack, and this time it was a daylight attack, which is somewhat different than, you know, usually they're at night and uh, not as visible here. That, of course, the press then jumps on it, and they show a picture of a guy saying somebody running away was shot. They don't say that this, these were terrorists who were escaping from uh, a place that Israel had identified, a building, and were armed and, and very dangerous uh, people. And that the there's always collateral damage, as they call it, uh, you know, that uh, a civilian in the wrong place at the wrong time, and we right. don't know who does it. And, and they don't care. They they want civilian damage at their deaths. They they relish it because then they can go to the international community and condemn Israel. That and the United Nations did it this week. Again, it's it's uh, you know it's such a double standard, a triple standard, an unreasonable standard that they hold Israel to. Back on February the tenth, which is the uh, most recent time that we've spoken on the air before today, you told us that on Monday the thirteenth of February would be a difficult day for Israel at the UN because of the potential UN Security Council resolution and vote, etc. cetera. Uh, what actually did happen at the UN and how did we avoid what would have been a much bigger brouhaha? Well, I don't know how much we avoided, and I, I assume the United States worked behind the scenes to prevent the full-scale condemnation, but we did see uh, a resolution from the United Nations that condemned Israel's actions. And, you know, they go after them over the settlements, over everything. Uh, Here you have a world in which people are being killed in massive numbers. You have vi violations, human rights violations, war crimes being committed in, in, in not only Ukraine, but uh, in other places. And yet the only country they focus on, the only one subject repeatedly to UN condemnations to UN resolutions is Israel, which is fighting a terrorist onslaught inspired by outside parties, and particularly Iran. And uh, so the resolution 
you know, people dismiss it because it comes from the UN. You can't dismiss it because it impacts public opinion and has ramifications, even though this is this doesn't carry with it specific things, but it will it will enhance the Palestinians' actions at the International Criminal Court and Court of Justice and uh, and further, you know, isolate Israel when you see countries joining together in this kind of condemnation. Hard to believe that we've spoken as long as we have already this morning and have not even brought up judicial reform. Have you uh, been stuck in any of the traffic jams this week due to the protests going on in Israel? Uh, actually, not directly, but there was demonstrations here uh, outside our hotel by a more right-leaning group, but still critical of the process. The demonstrations are mostly on Saturday night, uh, although this past week on Monday and Tuesday they had demonstrations in Jerusalem. It did hamper people coming into the city, but it seems the police handled it quite well. And uh, for the hours of when you had the, the people there, it was uh, an impediment. Uh, but it, the bigger problem is the mood in the country, the, the articles, the media coverage, which is so uh, one-sided. Uh, I can't say that this thing has been handled well, because I think there had to be much more communication with the people and explanation, certainly to foreigners who don't even understand what the issues are. But here, the reports of democracy is dead and dying. The prime minister spoke this week to us and reassured everybody that democracy is not dead and democracy will remain strong. And that, um, you know, a lot of the rumored changes are, are not in the offing. But he, the, the, there is a consensus on the left and the right, that the court needed reform. The question is what reforms and, and why wasn't there more of a discussion, you know, to prepare people for what uh, was being proposed. And now there is the belief that, you know, they're going to remove the protections for people and that the court is going to be completely politicized and dominated. Uh, I think that it will be a much more limited actions that will be taken uh, but there has to be a much more uh, organized process of communication and the threats of people to leave the country and to, you know, of, of high tech companies uh, taking their money out. I, I know that some of them, it's not it is not a valid threat. I mean, the, I, I, the climate is real, though, and I, I don't want to minimize it. I got to real. I got to say two things. First of all, I'm so glad you brought up the high tech thing. <laughs> and I know that you know we hate giving publicity to the New York Times, but boy, was that article suspicious. I mean, I read that entire article, <laughs> and I still don't see any measure of proof that what they're claiming, that high-tech companies are really going to leave Israel and invest otherwise or, or invest in staff members in other places. Of the world. It just – the whole thing didn't make sense to me. That one th – one of that this thing, judicial reform, however it ends up, would actually cause that to happen makes no sense to me unless I misread the article. Uh, so that looks really suspicious to me as if someone with a certain political agenda was trying to scare people into, oh, my gosh, you know, the, 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 the thing that runs these that keeps the engine of the Israeli economy going is about to be lost because of the right wing. That's what it seemed to me. All right. I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm I, I, I don't know enough, honestly, of the details of the legal processes that are involved. I understand in principle what 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 they want to do, but. Uh, I think a lot of people are commenting on things that they don't understand. And I'm talking about the farm media and right. and playing this, ex exaggerating some of it. But I will tell you again, 
that there is real concern. I've heard it from people from various parts of the spectrum about the divisiveness. And, and we have to be very concerned that the messages that have come out, some of the statements, irresponsible statements, you know, will be used by the BDS and by all these people long after this debate is resolved. Right. That, that I, they are that, in, in that I. That I totally get. But you know what the New York Times article reminded me of? It, re- it reminded me of you know when they found the two people that threatened to move to Canada if Trump's elected. I think they found the three people in Israeli high tech who are warning everybody they're going to take their money out if, you know, if the judicial reform goes through. That's what it looked like to me. That's why I say the whole thing looks suspicious. I, I understand. And the bulk of the high tech people are not moving. And some of those that threatened to move have threatened in the past to do so. But but I did speak to high tech people and and they have told me that they're very concerned that they won't get investment, that foreign investment won't come if they think there's instability. And I can tell you that Arab leaders who are not hostile to Israel said to us that they were very concerned about the stability of Israel right. in the wake of these demonstrations because they see the reports, right. they see the accounts also in the media and how, how they play it up. Right, but that, I think there's yeah. another message, what, one minute, Nachum, yeah. that this is such a vibrant democracy. You know, when 100,000 or 200,000 people come out and demonstrate, it's like 3 million people coming out in the United States. Right. Yet you don't read about looting. You don't read about rioting. You don't read about, you know, people being shot. Can you imagine if, if millions of people were demonstrating in the United States, what the consequences would be? So, that people could argue that this is, you know, going to re-enhance or reinforce participatory democracy because people, you know, are, are getting involved and making their voices heard. Uh, I understand that, it, you know, it, it may be a negative motivation, but it could be a positive uh, outcome. And that uh, the point is that it is a democracy that allows people who are critical of the government to come out and demonstrate week after week and be protected and be allowed to do so. I totally agree with you, and it's something to be proud of, and I totally agree with you. That's why I think in the end, Israel's going to be fine, no matter what happens, but as I, I, I dedicated this week to try to understand this issue, just to get to the crux of the matter, because you know people ask me about it, and you know it, it's confusing, especially when you're 6,000 miles away. And I, I, I think, and I don't know if you agree with this analysis, I think the right purposely overreached on this issue purposely shot for the stars and tried to you know put out proposals out there where they get everything in their favor literally in the attempt and in the you know for the conclusion of reaching some type of compromise that everyone would be able to live with they're led by a brilliant uh, diplomatic figure Netanyahu knows what he's doing and I am assuming and I hope I'm right I mean you'll tell me if I'm right I'm assuming that they just they they, they went for everything out there in public just to be able to, you know, calm everybody down afterwards and and show, hey, you know, we're able to compromise and look both sides are scathed a bit, but we're ready to move on together. I, I wish that I could say that that's the scenario. I don't know. Um, I, I don't think that this is a kind of game. This is brinksmanship, if that's the case. And I think it's a very dangerous game, if that's the case. I think that, that some of the parties are really going to grow because they want to make this absolute changes. Uh, we see some issues that came up now about the, the number of new units that are being built and other things. And Netanyahu constantly says, you know, I'm in charge. I will, I will have my finger on the whatever final decisions are made and uh, has addressed, uh, you know, some of the issues, including about the Kotel, saying there'll be no radical changes and there's not going to be other things that people have, have written and said. But I think we shouldn't underestimate 
the damage that's being done because they can distort and misrepresent because there wasn't a kind of preparatory steps. You know, they rushed in the first day and right. started introducing all these measures where I think it would have been smarter to have had an address to the nation and, a, you know, uh, uh, some perspective being put onto it and and, you know, calming down. They do. And, and still remember, you know, it's a country of nine million people. If 100,000 or 200,000, 300,000 demonstrate, that's not the voice of the majority. Right. And if you, we respect the voice of the majority, they elected a, a government. Whether they thought this government wanted all of this is a very uh, difficult question to answer. And pollsters argue that that, you know, many of them are having second thoughts or whatever. But it's clear that they're not looking for a left wing government. The people today in Israel are not looking for that. But here, this issue has been exploited. And, you know, we don't know what the real numbers are in that regard in terms of public uh, support or not. Well, I don't know if Netanyahu is the right guy for what you just described, especially as he's trying to hold on to the, you know, the, the, the stronghold of the right wing coalition. And secondly, you know, and you said you said it earlier in regard to the other thing. I mean. No matter what, even even if he would have been Reagan-esque, right, even if he would have done the way, you know, it would have approached this the way you described it, the media, the media still is such a is such a thorn in his side and has, you know, is so slanted in what in one direction. I don't even know if it would have made a difference if he would have gone ahead and acted in that manner. Uh, and that makes it that makes it really difficult. Yeah, but you don't give, I think, what a lot of the pundits would would say to that, which is true. I mean, the media here certainly is one-sided and uh, largely uh, uh, critical, even papers that didn't used to be, right. uh, to be uh, changing an orientation. Right. But but you, you also, I mean, in knowing that and anticipating it, if you wanted to create a showdown, you have to do one that where you control the outcome. Right. where you know what's going to come out of it. And Netanyahu certainly is a brilliant strategist and, you know, is not somebody who could tumble into something. But on the other hand, there may be issues of which he, he did not have control. Right. It's funny. He's really good at what you just described, but he really didn't go in that direction at all this time around. It's interesting. And uh, he did speak to the conference and was very, you know, reassuring to them. Hey, what did he uh, say? What did he say about the anti-Semitism in America? He did not speak about anti-Semitism in America, and he said that he's under a gag rule, which was imposed on him, so he couldn't talk about the judicial reform uh, uh, the right. legislation per se. And, you know, and of course, because he's under the court case, they're saying, well, this is all an attempt yeah. to, to, you know, protect himself and protect the, the yeah. and, and control of the court uh, because of his cases. I think it's uh, unfair when you're in the public eye, you're always going to be criticized, right, Mr. Holmes? You'll get poked. poked in the eye. You're always going to be, right? I thank you. Enjoy Shabbat in Jerusalem, and uh, have a wonderful Shabbos. And everybody should know it's very calm here. It's beautiful. People are getting ready for Shabbos everywhere, and um, and it's safe to come. People are writing me and asking me if it's if it's uh, safe, uh, as far as I can say, and that it's beautiful here and they should, they will have a wonderful time. And the hotels are full. The hotels are full. There are a lot of simchas here too, as well. So oh mazel tov to everybody. You're gonna... And especially a mazel tov to Leah Honline and to Abrami on their engagement. 
uh, uh, Evan Gartenhouse on their engagement this week. Mazel tov! So, so we're breaking the news. That is news breaking. Although it's, although it was out there ready before. So you're going to have to walk up the hill to get to the great synagogue tomorrow. I walked up last week, and I look forward to it again. Um, make sure you give an aliyah to the appropriate guests. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble after Shabbos. They all got, and they all were very delighted. And they one waiting for you for your offer. I know. Well, not my offer, my son's offer. But we have first have to decide well, where we have to first decide where it is. And, but don't worry. After that Shabbos, I'll still call you to complain whether I dive in there or not. That I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Some traditions die hard. Uh, Malcolm Holmline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. If you're diving in the Great Synagogue tomorrow morning, go over and say hi to Malcolm. And uh, he'll join us, please God, again next week, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time, Friday morning, right here at JM in the AM.